Well, good evening, one and all, and thank you so much for joining us for this evening's service. It's a pleasure to have you with us. And again, I want to thank everyone who's involved in bringing these services to us. It has been such an incredible blessing to each and every one of us that we're capable and able to do this. So thank you again for all those people behind the scenes who are doing so much. Um, the passage that we're going to look at this evening will conclude our study in 2 Peter. And so it's potentially right to uh, recap where we're at and uh, what Peter's spoken about. And we need to remember Peter's main purpose in writing to the church is to encourage the Christians to live godly lives. His desire is that they become so caught up in remembering, dwelling upon and learning about the things of God, or as he says, partakers of the divine nature, that they will escape the corruption of the world and certainly the false teaching that is part of this book as well. And Peter firmly believes if they do these things, if they diligently confirm their call, they will never stumble and they will be provided an entry into the kingdom of God. He's concerned about the false teachers and he dedicated a chapter to that and said that they are amongst the church men and women who feed on their own desires and they are found seeking and encouraging others to do the same as them. Part of their teaching is that Christ is not coming back anytime soon anyway. And in fact, he may not even return at all. And their actions and attitudes reflect that they're not really in submission to Jesus. And Peter writes to counter the influence of these people and their lifestyles on true believers. Peter's call is for all believers to look forward in anticipation of Christ's return. And when he comes, believers should be living holy, godly lives found following all the teachings of Jesus and the apostles, which are contained within the Bible for us. Remember these things and apply them, which is what we spoke on last week. Tonight, I believe Peter's call is for us to be prepared for, or more living in the expectation of Christ's return. Before we get into that, let's just pause and pray. Father God, I thank you so much that again we can just be gathered together like this. I thank you, Lord, that you are the Lord and Saviour of each one of us and you've done so much for us. And Lord, tonight I ask that you'll just open our hearts and minds to hear from you, that you reveal to us the truth of your word and that, Father, we will submit ourselves afresh to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So first and foremost, I believe Peter touches on this subject of one day being as a thousand years for Christ. And Peter is concerned with the false teaching that Jesus is not returning and the anticipation and expectation of his return is beginning to fade or wane amongst the believers as well. And as a result, the motivation for them to live morally, ethically and holy lives was also beginning to fade. And it stands to reason, if Christ isn't returning, if this is not true, why would we live that way anyway? The Christians of the day... We're expecting Jesus to come back soon. And they're now in a stage where it's 30 years since Jesus, since Jesus ascended. And they're asking, when is he coming back? Is he ever coming back? And Peter says in verses 8 and 9, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 
And Peter wants to affirm the fact that Christ is returning. And he begins by raising arguments against the false teaching that was going around, saying that Jesus was not returning. He indicates that we are looking things the wrong way around, looking at things the wrong way around. Our thoughts are from the perspective of humanity, how we live in time and space. But God is not like that. When he says one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day, he simply wanted to point out that God is living outside of our experience. He lives outside of time. And it's believed that Peter was alluding to or pointing to Psalm 94, which says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday, when it is past, or as a watch in the night. Here it says, Yesterday is as a thousand years to God. It's like a watch in the night. It's fleeting. It passes so rapidly for God. It means nothing. And we have difficulty understanding God's timing because of how limited our minds are. God lives outside of time. He knows all that happened in time past. He knows everything that is happening in time present. He knows everything that is happening in the future. That's why we don't need to fear because God has already been in our future. He knows what is going to occur and he works things in his timing and his purposes. He holds everything together by the power of his word. Nothing is impossible for him, even when we would say that time limits. I want you to think about Abraham and Sarah. God said he would give them descendants as numerous as the stars. And he did. And it was in his time. And that timing was a time when we would say it was impossible. We would say it was too late for Abraham and Sarah. Abraham was 100, Sarah was 90, and God says, I will give you a child. And he did it. Think about what it would have been like if Abraham and Sarah were our friends. We would have had those conversations where we said, well, maybe you didn't hear God clearly. The time has obviously passed. How could this happen now for both of you maybe we would say that they took things too literally and God was speaking metaphorically and he was going to give them a child another way regardless of all of that though God came through his word can be trusted if he says he's going to do it he will do it without question without fail and we can be secure then in the fact that Jesus is returning there's going to be many who oppose this belief. And as Peter has discussed, some will actually be in the church. But regardless of the scoffers, we are told in verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And Peter now moves to address the argument that God is slow to act. And the word slow here means delayed or late. It can even mean loitering. It's a human perspective projected onto God. It gives the impression that God is unable to fulfill the word or the promise that he has given. And it's, it has this connotation that he can't do it. It's through a lack of ability. It's through forgetfulness or apathy, meaning he no longer cares or is interested in fulfilling that promise. But as Peter explains... Some may think God is being slow, but he is really working everything out precisely as he has always planned. He is meeting his schedule down to the last minute. He laid out everything before the beginning of time. His plan is in place and he will complete it at exactly the right time. 
The delay that is being experienced is because of God's patience. Scripture tells us that it is God's desire that not one be lost. He doesn't want any to perish. And so his patience at this time is God providing the opportunity for people to hear the gospel message and to repent. It is not a failure to fulfill the promise, but it is a reflection of God's great love for us and all of mankind. And this is an idea or theme uh, that is repeated throughout Scripture, God's patience and forbearance. It is a theme that occurs in both the New and the Old Testaments. Habakkuk 2.3 says, For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It seems low. Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. For many, Christ's return may seem slow. They may not have been readily able to explain why Jesus' return appears to be delayed. But we and all believers can be assured that he will return. But before he does, God is ready to pardon. He will be gracious, merciful, slow to anger, and abundant in loving kindness towards all men, providing every opportunity for them to come to repentance and knowledge of the saving grace of our Lord and Jesus Christ. But we also need to remember, just as 2 Peter 3 says, as well as the passage we've heard from Habakkuk, God will not stay his hand forever. The day of judgment will come, just as he said it would. The righteous will be saved, but those who have refused to acknowledge Jesus as Lord and Saviour will suffer eternal separation from all things good. This will be the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is again a term that is used throughout Scripture, New and Old Testament alike. There are passages like Isaiah 13.6 and Joel 1.15, where the day of the Lord constantly refers to that day when God will move. He will save the faithful and he will bring total destruction to the wicked. His judgment will fall upon them. And Peter says in verse 10 of the passage we're looking at tonight, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Here in verse 10, Peter is again assuring believers that in contrast to God's patience with the sinner, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And this is a common theme also taught by Peter. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5.2, You know that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Both Paul and Peter are emphasizing that Christ's return will be sudden. They use this metaphor of a thief, and a thief strikes when it's least expected. There is no warning, there is no announcement, there is no fanfare, and so too will Christ's coming be. It will be totally unexpected. But as believers, we do not need to fear this. The day of the Lord will be a day of refining and purification for us. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burnt up. I'm not sure what you think about when you read about the heavens passing away with a roar. But uh, in my younger years as a teenager, I witnessed many cane fires. And uh, how they used to burn the cane, they, they would light up one end of it against the wind and it would backburn slowly. And once that fire had burnt a certain portion of the cane, they would light the other end of the cane. 
and the fire would rush through uh, the crop. And as the flames came rushing through that crop, at times it sounded like a train coming. It really did roar, literally. And that's the image I have when I think of the heavens passing away. It's this roar of fire is being totally consumed. It is gone. And the heavenly bodies or elements, as some translations say, will also be burnt up. And most believe this is the sun, moon and stars. And it affirms the Jewish belief that in that last day, even the stars will be destroyed. And then we're told the earth and all its works will be laid bare. It's believed that this is referring to the works of men being revealed. And I want you to think about the parable of the sheep and the goats. It will no longer be about what we say, but the true motives of our hearts and what we do will be revealed. It will be all tested by fire. 1 Corinthians 3.13 says, Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. And as I said earlier, this is a refining. Our works will be tested and purified. If how we lived and what we did are proven to be of God, if we have done it for Him and His purposes, we as the righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of the Father, as it says in Matthew 13, 43. So we do not need to fear the coming of the Lord. We should look forward to it. We will be purified. This body we have will pass We'll be given a new body. We'll enter into God's reward and we will live with Him for all of eternity. No more sin, no more pain, no more heartache. All of eternity to praise and glorify an incredible Saviour who we will see face to face. And with this in mind, how should we live? When we think about Christ's return, the fact that He could come any time at all, when we least expect it, it should motivate us, motivate us to live lives that are pleasing to God. Time is short. Think about even our lifespans uh, compared to all of eternity. It will not be long till we are face to face with our Saviour. And again, Peter says in verses 11 and 12, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you be? To live lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. All things, everything, will be dissolved or destroyed on that day. It speaks of everything that God has made or created, and humanity is part of that creation. When this destruction takes place, when the day of the Lord is upon us, we will all, believer and non-believer alike, come before the very presence of God. For those of us who know Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, we'll enter into His eternal rest. For those who don't, they will be judged and they will suffer eternal punishment. As believers, we're told we should long for this day. We should earnestly desire it. We should hasten or speed its coming. And this is a call to action. We as believers play a vital role in hastening this day of Christ's return. All through history, believers have prayed, Maranatha, come, O Lord. 
The Lord's Prayer petitions God, your kingdom come. In Matthew 24, Jesus tells his disciples to proclaim the gospel to all nations and then the end will come. And Peter, when he addresses the crowds in Acts 3, 19 to 21, tells the people to repent in order that God may send Jesus. So the call for us is to live holy lives, obedience to Jesus' teaching, telling others the gospel message and proclaiming the truth to all men. We should do this because we long to be purified. We long for the fulfillment of the hope that we have, that we will spend eternity with Christ. The heaven and the earth will pass away. The devil will be dealt with once and for all and, we will have no, and he will have no more influence over us. And in the absence of evil, there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And in that new heaven and new earth, righteousness will dwell. As believers, we are promised a new heaven and a new earth. When Peter says heaven and earth here, he's speaking about all of creation. In Genesis, God created heaven and earth. It was paradise, a place where mankind could dwell in perfect fellowship with God. It isn't only humanity that has suffered because of sin. Romans 8.22 says, For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. All of creation groans, longing to be renewed. It will be renewed and there will be no more sin. Creation itself, along with mankind, will be liberated from the terrible bondage of sin. This new place will be the home of righteousness. Righteousness will dwell there. It will be a place where it permeates everything. Think about that. There will be no more fear. You will be able to trust everyone without reservation, without concern. The love that will be experienced there will be unfathomable. We will see Jesus face to face. We will be in his presence. Can you imagine what that will be like? If we even get an inkling of that, I believe we will pray more fervently. Come, Lord Jesus. And we'll be more committed to living for him and telling others about him. So we hasten that day. Come, Lord Jesus. So we look forward to that day. And we wait for these things. And we are diligently being found in him, by him without spot or blemish and we will be at peace the call here is if we are looking forward to living in that home of righteousness then in the here and now we should constantly practice such living the call is to be diligent a call to be careful how we live we are to apply biblical truth to our lives we are to both proclaim and live the gospel message we are to develop a deep relationship with god and Peter's call is for us to be spiritually clean, without spot or blemish. Think of the sheep or goats that were sacrificed. They were to be without spot or blemish. How do we do that? We are to be found secure in the vine. John 15, 5 says, I am the vine, 
you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Abiding in Christ is about having that connection with him. Think about that image of the vine. We are the branches that have been grafted into the vine. We are those Gentiles that weren't part of of the Israelite nation, but we've been grafted in. Christ is that vine and he gives us life through that connection. We are in him and he is in us. It is a bond or union that we have with him and it is achieved through Holy Spirit. If we ever sever that connection, We have no life, not one that matters anyway. And we will not bear fruit. And that's what we're called to do. And so abiding in Christ is about depending upon him. To live as we should, we should be totally dependent upon Jesus living in us. And this again is achieved through the Holy Spirit. If we fail to maintain this connection, we will die. And It's about personal quiet times. It's about reading the word. It's about praying. And it's about doing that personally, but it's also about doing that corporately. It's about gathering with others and talking about the things that God has taught us and shown us from his word and praying for each other earnestly. So it's a personal thing and it's a corporate thing. But we should also gather with the saints to worship God together. We can do this through connect groups. And if you want to be a part of a connect group, please contact me. I would love to make that happen for you. It's about being involved in these services online in our current season. And it's also about coming and gathering together as these restrictions ease. We should have a desire and a want to meet physically together as a people of God and praise, honour and glorify Him when we do so. And we're to continue in this. We're never to tire of doing so. To abide means to continue. It's about remaining or staying in Christ. It's about working on our relationship each and every day. We should never think we have obtained a position or a place where we no longer need to work on our relationship with him. It's a daily, moment-by-moment commitment to him. And as Peter says, We should grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And if we want to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Saviour, we have to make constant decisions to follow him. We are told that we put to death our old selves. That's about putting aside our desires, our wants, our perspective on life and replacing them with what he wants, being willing to seek his purposes for our lives. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to say, well, Lord, it's no longer about me, it's about you. It is Christ who lives in me and I want to live a life that honours and glorifies him. The easiest way to do this, the easiest way to begin to keep the words of Jesus in our hearts and minds is to read his word, to memorize it, and ask him to bring these things to mind constantly. We need to allow them to renew us and revive us. It should change our mindsets. His word should be our guide and our compass. And we shouldn't resist him. We should submit fully to him. And when we do, when we submit fully to him, we allow him to shape us. And he will shape us. He will form us to be who he wants us to be. And I've told you many times, 
I never thought I'd be a pastor. My wife never thought she'd be a pastor's wife. And yet God has shaped us to be that way now. And we're so pleased to be in the midst of his will, exactly where he'd have us to be at this time. It's an incredible blessing to us. And so our lives, the way we live, is about trusting and remaining in his infinite, empowering, enduring and forgiving love. And if you've got no idea what I'm talking about, I'd love you to send me a message. I'd love you to contact the church. We'd love to tell you more about Jesus. We'd love to encourage you to find truth for yourself and to be found worshipping, honouring and glorifying him upon his return so you will be with us in eternity. That's the ultimate goal of our faith. Let's just pause and pray. Father God, I thank you so much for your love that you pour out upon us so freely. I thank you, Lord, by power of Holy Spirit, you can help us to never stumble or fall. And Lord, I thank you that as we desire to draw closer to you, you draw closer to us and we can remain in you. And so, Lord, it is my desire that for each and every person that is hearing my voice, that they will seek out truth for themselves, that they will want to get to know you, and that, Lord, ultimately they'll commit their life and their way to you. Father, I pray for us that we will confirm our call by submitting fully to you. Lord, take us and use us for your glory. Use me for your glory, Lord. Allow us, as a people of God here at SDBC, become known, for our great faith, for submitting fully to you, for seeing great works because you are moving amongst us by power of Holy Spirit. And Lord, will you begin that now? Move amongst those who are hearing my voice. Let them sense your presence. Let them know the things that they need to confess to you so they can draw closer. We pray this now, Father, in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Thank you one and all. I hope you have a great week.